It is, um, we know this is not the day of Pentecost, and yet the same Holy Spirit that was there is promised to be with wherever two or three gather. And so tonight, I would suggest that one of the, I was recently asked, what is the marks that you know you're saved? And I think one of the marks is that we have a hunger for truth. We have a continual hunger for truth and to serve the Lord. And that happens when the Holy Spirit has control of our total being. So I trust tonight as we gather, as Brother Jason speaks, and as we listen, and as we meditate, that we will also be praying continually that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to dwell among us and to enlighten us. Let's just go to prayer. Dear Lord God, all grace, and they have come to us, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, um, come to us from Pennsylvania. They, I was worried the way the weather was, that whether or not it would even happen. And so I got a hold of him, or he got a hold of me maybe, I don't remember which, about 11 o'clock this morning, and I said, How, you know, how's it going? Oh, he says, we're in Ohio, and I'm driving 70 mile an hour. <laughs> they made it. So <laughs> we're glad to have them, and we welcome them. And there are some handouts here. If I could have a couple of young men uh, take them. Jason, maybe you tell them how you want to distribute these. One for everyone, if there's enough to reach, there's 50 of them. And if not, one for every young person, and then couples can share them. So. <clears throat> well, good evening. It's, it's a joy to be with you. You know, it's so interesting. If you, you plan for something like this a long time in advance and then all of a sudden it's here and that's that's sort of what life is is like so we're the screen up there says welcome to foundations for life and I would sort of like to give you a little bit of an introduction of where that comes from so over the past many years Grace and I have spent dealing with a lot of hurting people and in working with hurting people and hurting situations we started seeing five common problems that just kept on coming up and, and they, they were just almost always there. And as I, as I was processing this, I started thinking about it. Well, if these five things are always there, then what if we would, what if we would focus on dealing with those five things? And so the, the set of teachings that you're gonna hear this weekend is what I call the foundations for life. And the reason, I call them the foundations for life, is, is that these are wrong concepts that people have. And so I'll just, I'll just run through them if, if I can remember them all in sort of order. But the first one, and we're going to look at that one this evening, is people who have gone through a lot of hurt and pain usually, almost always, have wrong concepts of who God is. I call it wrong concepts of God. So tonight we want to look at that. And this is going to be just a brief touch on these topics. The, the second one is, is we, we have, you have wrong identity. We get our identity, where do you get your identity from? And so that we're gonna talk about tomorrow. We have wrong concepts of love. What, is, what does love mean? When somebody says I love you, what does that mean? When you say I love you, what do you mean? You see, we don't have a good understanding of what love truly is. And so those wrong concepts of love. And then, and then we, we struggle with, with forgiveness. 
huge problem with wrong, wrong concepts of forgiveness. We know we need to forgive. Forgiveness is important. But many people don't understand how Jesus defines forgiveness, and we don't know how to go about forgiving. That's one we want to spend some time on. And then the last one is, is people have a tendency to live out of either their emotions or they live out of their intellect or out of their will. Emotions or force of will, and God wants us to learn how to live out of our spirit. And so that will be the fifth one. Now, I've added a sixth one since then, and we're going to touch on that Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour, and that is wrong concepts of sexuality. Why did God create us as sexual beings? We want to address that Sunday morning. I know you're not supposed to talk about that in church, right? Okay, we, we will. All right. So let's, let's begin. So when I, here's, there's, there's three things that need to come together for faith to work well. The first one is, is we need proofs of intellect. Our, our mind has to agree that there is a God. Uh, Hebrews says that he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we need intellectual proofs of, of belief that God exists. And most of us, I don't think, struggle a lot with that. I did go through a period of time when I struggled greatly with that. As a teenager, I, I went into 1W service, and I started seeing things that were just horrendous. I worked in a mental hospital, and I started questioning whether there even was a God. And it's so fascinating, I still run into people who question whether there is a God. And so that creates a problem when we have, but so proof of intellect has to happen for healthy faith. But when I look at the evidence, when you look, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth sheweth forth his handiwork. So there's so much proof there. But the second and third ones give us more problem. The second one a little bit, and that is we have to come to realize that I need something bigger than myself to get through life. That's very important for us to realize. The third one is what causes the greatest amount of problems for faith. And listen to this one, okay? It's when, it's when hurts and pain, and we look around us and we saw, see all the evil and all the sin and all the corruption, and if God is a good, all-loving, all-knowing, powerful God, why would all this be happening? And the worst one is this. And that is when people who claim to be God's people treat us horribly. That is the biggest destroyer of faith. I watch it over and over and over again. I sit and hear and listen to, to, to people tell stories. And I could sit here and tell you horror stories that I have listened to. We recently, uh, back in uh, November, we did a a uh, symposium on the Anab Anabaptist awareness for sexual abuse. All I can tell you is, is that's been a very interesting journey. We've, we've had three of them so far. We're planning the fourth one right now, uh, which is going to be out in Shipshawana, Indiana. But when you sit and listen to stories like that, it is horrendous, and the pain is great. And you know, the statistics would tell us that sitting here this evening, one in one in five women have experienced sexual abuse, and one in eight young men. Sometimes one in ten, depending where it's at. So I would say some of you know what I'm talking about there. But here's, I, 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 was, I did a uh, workshop there, and that workshop was called The System and Angry Defectors. How would you like to do a workshop on that one? And so what I did to prepare for that is I interviewed angry defectors. 
What's an angry defector? It's somebody who's walked away from our belief system because of what happened to them in life. And here's what I heard. They said that the way the, the, way the church handled their situation and their case was more painful and hurt worse than what the original abuse did. Did you hear that? Can you hear that? I'll tell you, that should, that should just really make us wake up. And so what I see is people walk away from the faith because of the way people who claim to be God's people treat them. And also, that also crushes, make, creates all these wrong concepts. Wrong concepts of God, wrong concepts of identity, wrong concepts of, of love, wrong concepts of forgiveness. So this, this, this weekend, my goal is to give you tools to give you tools to use, because in putting these teachings together, here's another conviction that I have. I know there, there are some really good counselors out there, and many of you, some of you, or some, maybe many of you, have gone for counseling. I'm not opposed to counseling. However, I don't think that's the answer. I don't think it's what God has intended. And here's what I see God intending, and it's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, it is God's intent that his manifold wisdom would be made known to the principalities and powers, which would be the unseen realm. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along this weekend. But it is God's intent that his manifold wisdom, in other words, God, God's wisdom is beyond comprehension. It covers everything. I happen to believe that the Bible is, has and holds the answers to every problem that we have in life. I believe that with all of my heart. It is the final authority in my life. It should be the final authority in every life, but that's not always the case. But he says it is his intent that his manifold wisdom would be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, and now here's the clincher, through the church. I believe that God's intent is that people who have gone through hurt and pain in life should be healed in the everyday gathering of the church together in the assembly by hearing the word of God taught with the power of the Holy Spirit with application. So my heartbeat this weekend would be to maybe give you tools for you to use because not, anybody here found life easy so far? Huh, Phil, Phil is raising his hand up here, okay. Well, I'd like to sit down. <laughs> I haven't found life easy, I found life difficult. And, and I could just, I could tell you horror stories that I've gone through. There isn't anybody here who hasn't walked through very difficult times in life already, even at a, even at a young age. Okay? And so we need something bigger than ourselves to get through life. I would, my goal is to give tools to you that you can use to, to provide healing. Healing for your heart, healing for your soul, healing for your mind, healing for your body. Because... That's what I see God wanting. He wants us to be living spirit, soul, and body. Be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that our spirit, soul, and body, we are a threefold being. He wants our, our spirit, soul, and body to work with integrity. It, in other words, integral. It, it works together. When I see hurting people, I see that their spirit and their, and their soul and their body are separated. They're, they're disintegrated. And so they're, they're living out of their soul over here, very soulish, uh, out of their emotions. Or they're living out of their body desires, their bodily hungers, appetites. And so 
God wants them all to be flowing together, working together in, in harmony and in unity. So my heartbeat is, and you know, in giving you tools, in giving us tools and looking at tools, tools only work if what? If you pick up the tool and use it. And so we can get all the tools, we can, we can hand out all the tools, you can have carpentry tools, but you aren't going to build a house if you don't pick up the carpentry tools and, and, and make them work. So that's, that's sort of my heartbeat. Um, I, I put together a handout here, this handout we are not going to go over this evening, but let me just explain it to you. Uh, because I, in dealing with people who have really struggled and say, if we have a God who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, everywhere present, how, how can this kind of a God allow us to live in a world that is so broken, and why would he let this happen to me? I run into that over and over and over again. So this is an attempt to respond to that. So if you look at the front of it, it says God's song, and that is the last part of, of Deuteronomy 31, where God is telling Moses, teach the children of Israel this song. Well, why do we learn songs? Well, we learn songs because we like to sing, but guess what? Songs stick with us, and we can, re we can sort of memorize it. Well, this is a very long song, but God wanted him to teach it to the children of Israel so they would remember it. So as you go over this, and, and I'm not going to go over it now, but there's highlighted, uh, there, there's emboldened passages there. And then at the bottom, is it, this is all scripture on the first page, but then if you flip it over, you get Jason's concepts of, and ideas. And uh, it starts out there, wisdom will not keep us from Israel's folly. And so what I really want you to see is, is the reason why we're dealing with the hurt and pain is because we have rejected, and you're going to read this if you go over this passage, to me it'll tell you why we're dealing with the hurt and pain in, in, our, in, in our lives and in our world. It's not God's fault. God is a God of freedom, and he created you with freedom. He created me with freedom. And we have, when we are created with freedom, guess, guess what that does? Is it the freedom to do what, with whatever we want to do with what we want? No, it's the freedom to do what's right. How many of you realize that we live in a, we live in a nation of, of uh, freedom, democracy? How many of us are aware that that that's not going to stay that way because we believe that freedom gives us the right to do anything we want to do instead of it being the freedom to do what we ought to do. And when you mess that up, then freedoms start getting abused. And whenever you have freedoms, whenever you abuse freedoms, there's only one solution to it, and that is to make laws to govern those who are abusing freedoms. And then, then we just fall back into an authoritarian state again enough politics okay so that's what the purpose of this is uh, so you, if I hope it's helpful it's once again hopefully it's a tool so I'd like to talk about uh, this thing this question uh, wrong concepts damage us and it damages those around us Satan is a liar he's the father of lies and he is a deceiver and Satan wants to give you wrong concepts of who God is he want, he doesn't want you to see God as he truly is but Jesus is, he says, John, in John he says, the truth will set you free. And, if, and, and he says, I am the truth. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so we want to look at Jesus as the truth. Look, so here's a question. Who is God 
to you. Now you say, well, well that's, that's sort of an interesting question because isn't the same God to me as he is to you? Not necessarily. Your concept of God could be very different from the person who's sitting right aside of you, even if they're your spouse or even if they're your friend. Your concept of God could be very different from that person. Why? Because of different experiences and how you have interpreted those experiences to mean what God is to you. But we want to look at what, who, who God really is. And here's a, a fascinating scripture. Jesus says, this is eternal life. Oh, my, don't you want to know what eternal life is? How many, who, who here could, could finish that one? This is eternal life. What's, what's the finish of that? Anybody? Hmm? Yeah. That they might know you, the only true God. Ah, it says the only true God. Did you know there's a, your concepts of God might be producing an untrue God in your mind? You might not see him for who he truly is. You might not see him accurately. But eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Why? Is because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have a God who is triune in nature, and he is one God, but he presents himself three ways. So who is he? What is he like? Is he a stern judge? Is he a sovereign who created us and then told us to worship him? Is he a dictator and a manipulator? I put these up here because those are some of the things that people have told me that that's how they see God. I remember a number of years ago, I was doing a series of teachings at church, and this goes back quite a few years, and, and I, I was teaching about God as Father. Now, I had a father who I loved dearly, and he loved me, and I had good, I had, you see, our concept of God, well, we'll get, to, we'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead of the game. But I was teaching about God as being Father. And on the way home from church, my sweetheart turns to me and says, they're not getting it. Well, it's exactly what you want to hear from your wife on the way home from church after you preach the sermon, right? And I says, well, what do you mean they're not getting it? She goes, you had a good dad. The majority of them there, I know, did not have a good dad. And she said, she says, well, when I, think of, when I think of God, I think of somebody up there with a big stick just waiting for me to step out of line to hit me. That was my wife saying that. You know, who is God to you? What is he like? Can we know? Is he a knowable God? Well, if eternal life is knowing him, then God is going to let us know who he is and what he is like. Is he a powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, loving? And if so, if he is this kind of a God, why is there so much evil and suffering? That's a huge question that people are asking over and over again. And when you're dealing with hurting people, you hear that. You hear that. Just this past Sunday, and I, I go on too many bunny trails and watch the time disappear. This past Sunday, I, I had a message on faith and, and who God is and I, and I, from a different perspective than this one. And it was so interesting. Afterwards, a, a middle-aged man came up to me, and he says, he says, yeah, he says, I'm really struggling with even believing that God could be a good, caring, loving God. You know, this is in our congregation. I'm going, oh, yes. You see, you see our concepts of God can really be messed up, and they can really be un, incorrect and unbiblical. And so it's important for us to know. 
<clears throat> is he like my dad? How can I know? Oh, you see, is he like my dad? Well, one of the reasons we put that there is because a father, especially a father, but also a mother, gets to write our concept of God on our children. You, get, you as a dad, especially, get to write on your children's heart who a father is, what God is really like. And the kind of dad you are has a huge impact on how your children will see how Father God is like. Mothers as well, because you see God created man and woman in his image, and then we get to implant the image of God. We are image bearers, and we are to plant the image of God on our children as well. And that's crucial. That's so important. But how can I know? Is he like my dad? We're, uh, I, think this is a, uh, this is, I think this came from C.S. Lewis. I should have looked that up before. I, I have the quote somewhere in my notes. But it says, we are ever in danger of abandoning God for our idea of him. So you see, if we have incorrect concepts, we, if we don't like what we think about God, why would we want to serve him? Why would we worship him? And I watch people walk away from their faith and the faith because of what was done to them and their life experiences because it doesn't jive with what they want to see the God of heaven be like. Our idea of God is and what he is like come primarily from our authority relationships. If, if it's healthy, a balance of truth and love and discipline and grace, well, then we have a healthier view of God. If it's detached, if, if our parents were maybe, they were there and they provided for us physically and with food and, and warmth and housing, but they weren't really actively involved in our life, well, maybe, maybe that's the way God is. Maybe, maybe God's a provider, but he doesn't really care about the details of my life. What about performance? Was he, and this is a very strong one in the, in, in the Christian community, is it's, it's all about performance. It's about demanding and confrontational and let's get her done. And we're pretty good at getting it done, aren't we? Well, what if, is that how we see God? Because that's the way we had authority figures in our life. What about somebody who's harsh? If a dad or, or even an authority figure, a church, a church leader, was harsh and verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually abusive, then we might think that God is that way. It's sort of where grace came from with uh, God up there with a big stick just waiting to hit her if she steps out of line. And then what if our dad wasn't there for us? What if he abandoned the family? What if he just was, you know, both of our children are adopted. And so... Their bio, and I, you know, I, I remember my son telling me, my mom didn't want me. Okay, that's rejection. You see, what does that do when you have a concept of, of who somebody is, is a heavenly overseer and to be responsible for who we are and how we're doing? You see, how we, how we see God has a huge, is hugely impacted by the way we've had life experience with people. So where can we go to correct our wrong concepts? I think this is very important for us to see. Moses, David, and Paul, all three of them referenced God's self-description in Exodus 34 as the source for their concepts of God. When I see somebody struggling with their concept of God, I take them to Exodus 34. So let's just take a look at some things here. In Exodus 33, verse 11, it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So you'd think that Moses really knew God, and God really knew him. 
Oh, we know God knows us completely and totally, but you would think that Moses would have known God because God was speaking to him face to face as a friend would with a friend. But look what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, you have said I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways that I may know you. You know, this passage changed my life. Years ago, somebody pointed out this scripture to me and I started reading it and I'm going, there's something here I want. And I started, I started reading this I started reading Exodus 33 and 34, and I read it over and over. I think I read it every day for, for like six weeks, sometimes several times a day. I knew there was something here. And, what, and, and maybe I'm just a little dense. You would get it a lot quicker. But you see, what I started seeing is Moses was saying, here, here's God speaking with Moses face to face, and yet he's saying, show me your ways that I may know you and find grace in your sight. I started praying that. I started praying that years and years ago. Father, show me your ways that I may know you. And you know, I started, and, and I don't know when it started happening, but I, I believe God answered that cry of my heart. He started showing me more and more about who he was and what he was like and how he functions in my world and in our world. And so I was, it was just, it was life-changing for me. But let's, let's continue and see what, he, what, what comes out of this yet. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. So you see, God is, he wants to respond to us asking for us to know him. So my encouragement to you, a tool that you can use, is just keep asking God. Show me your ways that I may know you. In Psalm 103, verse 7, there's this sort of a little innocuous verse that says, He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. Well, here's what's fascinating about this. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts unto the sons of Israel. If you get, as we get into, uh, into Exodus 34, God told them, he says, I am going to show you miraculous things like you never saw before. And the children of Israel experienced that. They crossed the Red Sea. It split. They could walk through on dry ground. When they were hungry, they got manna. When they were thirsty, they got water. I mean, they saw things that were miraculous. Their clothing never wore out. It was, it was just an amazing experience. They saw God's works. They saw his acts. But you know what? It didn't change them. Knowing, seeing God's, you know, do you ever, don't you ever wish you could just see a miracle? I mean, a genuine miracle. You say, well, I think I've seen some. No, I mean the sea just parting, and you can walk through on dry ground. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be a faith? Wouldn't that produce faith in you that you would, that would never be shaken again? It didn't in them. It did not in them. You see, miracles don't, don't change our concepts. It really doesn't. We, we forget them very quickly. As soon as the next problem comes, we forget the solution that God gave us back there. But when you know God's ways... You start learning who he is and how he functions. That doesn't go away. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse, I think it's around 21, where he says, I keep asking the glorious Father that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. I started incorporating that prayer into my life. 
Before I read God's word in the morning, I will say, Father, I'm going to be reading your word. Would you give me the spirit of wisdom so I know how to use what I'm going to read? Would you give me the spirit of revelation? Because if you don't reveal it to me, how will I know? And I just believe that when we start asking God for those things, that's Paul's prayer for his people. I started asking it for myself. That's another tool I would just encourage you to use. Ephesians 1, just as you get down there, right around verse 20, 21, read Paul's prayer and just see, <coughs> see what he has to say there. It is powerful. So look what it says here in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, for 40 years saw what I did. See, he saw his acts. Remember that, that scripture that we just looked at in, 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 in Psalm? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Here in, his, in, in Hebrew, the writer is saying, they saw what I did for 40 years. They saw my works. They saw my acts. They saw my miracles. But he says, that was why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. Do you see how important it is to ask God to show you his ways so that when you know his ways, you will get to know him better. You'll know how he functions. God, God showed and God rewarded Moses. He, he showed Moses his ways. God blessed him with the response to that prayer. He showed the children of Israel his acts, but it didn't change them. Here's what I end up believing very strongly, and that is if you go after his acts, you might get the blessing. We want the blessing. You go after the blessing, you might, you might never get his heart. You might never show, he might never show you his ways. But if you go after his ways, you'll experience blessing along with that. He says, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They saw what I did, but it didn't change them. They did not know my ways, so I said, you can't enter my rest. I just, you know, we want rest. And so when we're talking about healing and giving tools for us to find healing for our hearts because of what has happened to us and experiences through life, this is a place where we want to go. We want our hearts to rest. We want our souls to rest. We want peace. And here he's saying, if you, if you find his ways, you can start finding peace in the midst of the storm. Okay, peace in the middle of the storm. Not relief maybe from the storm, but peace in the middle of the storm. Now, in Exodus, and then, uh, then Moses said, this, I, I, I appreciated so much the audacity of Moses. Look what he says next. He says, show me your ways that I may know you. And then God says, okay, I'll do what you asked me to. And then Moses said in, in verse 18, he says, now show me your glory. Now show me your glory. And I go, oh, isn't that interesting? He really got in God's face. He says, now show me your glory. You, sh you, you told me you're going to show me your ways. Now show me your glory. What is glory? What is God's glory? And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. Here's something so important to realize, is that God's name is his glory. He says, I'm going to declare my name, Jehovah. Jehovah, I'm going to declare my name. I'm going to tell you what that name means. It has meaning. And I'm going to show you. That's my glory. My, my name is my glory. Look at the scripture in Psalm 910. 
Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He's saying those who know your name. You see, God's name has meaning. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that real soon. We want you to see what God's name. Here, God in his own words are going to show Moses what his name means. Look at this other verse in Psalm. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Anybody know that song? Anybody know that song? The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it. It's a beautiful song. Anyway, we're not going to sing the song. Uh, but the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. Oh, we can run into that name. And that name becomes a protection for us, a strong fortress that we can go to. So here we go to Exodus 34, 5 through 7. And the Lord came down and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord. He goes, Jehovah, Jehovah. <clears throat> a number of years ago, there was a, a pastor friend of mine, Lancaster County. He called and he said, Jason, we've had some interesting things happening in our church. He said, there's several couples I would really like if you would come down and meet. And so I went down and sat in his office. And I'll never forget this. This older couple walked in. Older, gray-haired couple. Empty nesters. Grandchildren, grandparents. And they came in and they sat down. And I said, so tell me why you're here. And he looked at me and looked at his wife. And he says, well, he says... My wife told me that I'm married to an angry woman. So I looked at her and I said, so are you angry? And she goes, big smile on her face. She said, yep. And I, I, I go, okay, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> that don't make any sense. So I just said, so tell me why you're angry. <clears throat> she goes, because my dad was angry. He would beat the cows. He would beat us. And one time, he yanked me out of the shower and beat me. It was so humiliating. And she said it with anger in her, in her voice. And I, I said to her, I said, uh, so when you think of God, who do you think, what do you think he is like? And she goes like this. It was so quick. She goes, he's an angry someone up there somewhere. Now tell me, just, just think about this. Think about this. This is, a, this is a grandma who raised children and have grandchildren. She went to church all her life. She looked like the sweetest little Mennonite lady you could ever look, look at. And her concept of God is, he's an angry someone up there somewhere. Now I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think her prayer life was like? What do you think her relationship like? What do, you, what do you think her relationship with the Lord was like? Do you think everybody who saw her on a Sunday, ever since she was little, grew up, got married, raised children, had grandchildren, they saw this sweet mom, sweet grandma, and he says, I never knew I was married to an angry woman. And here she sat telling me that God is an angry someone up there because her dad was angry. Beat the animals, beat her. And she specifically mentioned that shower incident because it was so horribly painful. Some of you have experienced things like that. Where do you go with that? How do you experience healing? What do you do with that? I took my Bible. 
I have it with me. And if I would open to you and show you an Exodus 34 and 33 and 34, I read with highlighters. It is full of color. Because those passages have become so real and life-changing to me. I opened my Bible, and I turned it around, and I put it in her lap, and I said, I would like you to read Exodus 34, and I, starting at verse 5, and I want you to read it, and I want you to read it real slow. So here's what she read. The Lord, the Lord. What do you think the first word is that God describes, that, that God uses to describe himself? Anyone want to guess what the first word is that God uses to describe himself? This is, this is the NIV. This is nearly infallible version, NIV. Okay, okay. Just, just thought you ought to know that. Okay. Just, okay. So what do you think the first word is that God uses to describe himself? How about that one? Aren't you glad that the very first word that God uses to describe himself isn't perfect? It's compassion. That's the first word that God uses to describe himself. In the King James, it would say merciful. Here it says compassionate. Do you know that's the number one word that's used to describe Jesus? He looked on people with what? Compassion. Why? Because he cared about them. He cared about them. We have a Father God who cares about you. He cares about what's happening in your life. And, and you say, well, if he really cared, why did he let this happen to me? That's why I handed this. That's why I made this. Because you'll see that the reasons, and I believe that the reason why so many of us deal with the hurt and pain that we do in our lives is because the generational iniquities get visited upon the third and the fourth generation. And most of the problems that we're dealing with have been handed down to us. Those are not excuses for us to put up with that pain and hurt. I'm just telling you, I have watched it repeatedly. It's handed down generationally. God doesn't, he says, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he shall also reap. The reason why we should live holy lives, brothers and sisters, is so that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren don't have to pay for the crap that we do. It's one of the things that keeps me from looking at porn and other garbage because I don't want my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to pay for my stupidity. And I see so much of the hurt and pain has get, gotten handed down to us. And, and it's time for us to stop it. And we can. There's answers to it. You know, throughout this weekend, I wanna, when I close, I would like to open up for comments, Q&A. If I am teaching something, I should be able to defend it. But I really want it to be open conversation. You, ask, you can't ask, any, don't ask, if you think it's going to be a dumb question, you're not going to answer it. No, the, the dumb question is one you're not going to ask, okay? Ask the questions, okay? Make comments. I really want that. So the very first word is compassionate. Aren't you so grateful? Jesus looked at people with compassion. God is a compassionate God. Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Number two is gracious. Aren't you glad? He is a gracious God. He is a God of grace. Number three, he's slow to anger. And I'll tell you what, when this lady was reading this, when I got to that one, I, I, I had her stop and I had her reread it. I said, do you see what God is saying? This is who God is. God is compassionate. He's gracious. And God is not like your daddy. 
He is slow to anger. Now, we went through this whole list, and I just want to tell you ahead of time, I watched her walk out of there free. Isn't it interesting? The truth sank in, and she started understanding that God was not an angry God waiting to hit her when she stepped out of line. He's abounding in love. That's his fourth word. This is God. This is God's own words to Moses, showing Moses his glory. God's name is his glory. Abounding in faithfulness. It keeps, you know, there's a big stick coming here somewhere, isn't there? Surely there has to be. Maintaining love to thousands. This is God just going down through this list, telling Moses who he is. And then the last one, forgiving, iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God is a forgiving God. And you know, I don't know how you've ever looked at iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but we're going to be looking at it this weekend, especially when we look at love. But just to give you an idea, just a little brief, iniquity is the motive. Iniquity is the motive, and we're going to look at that tomorrow. You see, it's the reason I do what I do. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to, who can say what's next? Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord God laid upon him. Iniquity is going your own way. It's being selfish. It's being self-centered. The motive of our sin is self-centered selfishness. And that we're going to be looking at when we look at love tomorrow. Rebellion is the attitude. I don't have to listen to you. That's what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve decided they could be their own God, and they didn't have to listen to God. And then the sin is the action. You see, God is willing. He will. He forgives the reason why you did it, the attitude you did it with, and the thing that you did. Isn't that awesome? Do we have an awesome God, or do we have an awesome God? Yeah, that's who this God is. This is, this is the real God. Yeah, this is the real God. He goes on to say, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, it doesn't say he's visiting the sin. It says he's visiting the iniquity. Now, I want to tell you, when you do a study, a Bible study on sin and iniquity, if you, depending on what version you use, they're going to interchange those two because they're not thinking it through. But what's fascinating is, is when you get to some of the, when you look at some of the scriptures, because it mentions sin and iniquity in the same verse, now they have to separate them. And so iniquity means self-centered, uh, a, mo a motive that comes out of our selfish self-centeredness. That's important for us to understand. Okay. And so God says, I'm a loving, I'm all these, I'm all of this. I'm all of this. But that doesn't mean you can thumb your nose at me and just say that if that's the kind of God you are, you don't really, you're not really a strict God. He says, no, 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 I mean what I say. I mean what I say. It's important that you understand that. He says, you will worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Is there any, are there any jealous people here tonight? I am. You mess with my girl, I'm going to mess with you. 
Uh-huh. And that's what God's saying. He's saying, you mess with my people, I'm going to mess with you. Uh-huh. Are you jealous? Good guy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing games. <laughs> He's jealous, see? <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that's a good thing. You know, our, our jealousy that creates all kinds of problems in this world is not a healthy jealousy, but God is a je- jealous God. And what does Paul say? I, I, I care over you with a godly jealousy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David. So we just, we just looked at Moses, and look at David here. He says, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Where did he get this? He got it out of the writings of Moses. He got it out of Exodus 34. He really did. He'll not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. You see, it's compassion-driven anger. It's slow, utterly under his control. God doesn't just lash out. It is, he, he has compassion-driven anger. I don't believe God's people get angry enough at the sin that's destroying us. It's redemptive anger that always stays love. Look what he continues. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. That's a healthy fear. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know what he's doing? He's giving us superlatives. You can't measure the distance between the east and the west, nor the heavens. Okay? He's giving us superlatives to show us what an awesome love God has for us and what an awesome forgiveness he has for us. And then he goes, as a father has compassion on his children. You know, I have a tendency to go on into too many bunny trails. That word compassion is rachab. It's a rachab love. It's the same love that Hosea was told to love Gomar with. I think anybody that marries a, a woman by the name of Gomar needs, needs help. Okay, never mind. But you see, he loved Gomar with a rachab love. That meant that he loved her even when she was unfaithful. That's the kind of God that God loves us with. Even when we're unfaithful, he keeps on loving us. And, and then when Rahab played, I mean, when Gomar played the harlot and went off and lived with other men, she ended up being wasted. She, he went on the, she went on the auction block for slavery. And he went and he bought her back. And he restored her with a Rahab love. That's the kind of God we have. He says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed. He knows we're a mess. He knows we're a mess. We were made out of dirt. Yeah. Who's David talking to in this psalm? Who can tell me? Who is David talking to in this psalm? Anybody know? Who's David talking to in this psalm? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now listen, do you see the importance of self-talk? Can you hear this? Do you hear the importance of self-talk? All this that we were just going over, David was saying to himself, praise the Lord, O my soul. What's he talking? He's talking to his heart. He's recounting, he's recounting the glory of God given in Exodus 34 to himself. God is compassionate, forgiving, abounding in love, long-suffering, slow to anger. 
He's recounting this to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. All my inmost being, praise his glorious holy name. See, there's power in that name. Got a question for you. What kind of a father did David have? What was, what was David's daddy's name? Jesse, what kind of a dad was he? What kind of a dad was he? Come on. Do we, do we know anything about him? So what does that tell you? Was David high on the totem pole in the family? He was not. He brought in all the bigger, stronger brothers. Maybe David was the runt. I don't know. But he never even called him in from the field. Exactly, Lisa. That's, that's exa it tells us something about daddy, don't it? And then Samuel has to say, you don't have any more? And then, then also, think about it later. After he was anointed king, and even it didn't happen for quite a while, but think about when dad sent David to carry food into the brothers who were in the army. Remember, what, how, remember how that turned out? Remember how that turned out? What did, what did the brothers do? They made fun of him. They laughed at him. He said, go, go, back, go back home and tend the sheep. You know, you learn, and we're going to look at this tomorrow when we look at shame. There's things you learn tending sheep in the desert with nobody to impress that you don't learn anywhere else. Okay. But you see, David, Jesse had seven of his sons, but there was no room in the house when Samuel showed up for, for David. Hmm. Well, there's still the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. It tells us a little bit, doesn't it? But that's not the kind of father God is. Blessed be, in 1 Corinthians, now we have Paul. Blessed be the father, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, a father of compassion, God of all comfort, who comforts us, look what it says there, in all our troubles. Do you know what? We want, to be, we want to be comforted out of our troubles. We want God to take the troubles away, right? Aren't you there? I want God to take me out of the troubles. Father, if you're a good God, get, 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 get rid of the problem. But no, he says... He'll comfort us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You know, grace has been such a blessing. It's, it's, it's hard to understand how a tragedy can be turned into a blessing, but Grace's brother was killed when he was 17 years old in a head-on traffic collision. Yeah, was, yeah, Steve and Karen remember that well. Some of the other of you do too. But he was here now, gone. And you know, Grace would wake up sometimes in the middle of the night just screaming because brother was gone. She could just replay that. But guess who was there in the neighborhood when somebody experienced a tragedy like that? Yeah. It was Grace. Why? And you know what? They couldn't tell her she don't understand. So here's Paul saying, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we are equipped to comfort other people who are going through similar circumstances. Can you hear that? Can you see that? God has a plan. He even has a plan for our problems and our struggles. When we find answers and we find truth that replaces the lies that we get to believe, Satan loves to, get, to make us have wrong concepts of God because of the damage and the hurt and the pain that other people have caused us. We blame God. 
for it. Please, please look at this if you're struggling with that. When you pray, say, Father. You know, it's so interesting. I've had people who cannot pray and say, Father. Give you another, I, I, like, I like stories. But I remember at Encouraged Men one year, a man came up to me and says, will you see my brother? Will you talk to my brother? He's getting married in two weeks, and, and he needs help. I said, I, my plate's full. I can't see somebody right now. He said, please, he's getting married in two weeks. This shouldn't happen. Will you see him? I said, okay. He has to come early in the morning, and he has to bring his girlfriend with him. I figured if I'm going to talk to him, and this is going to go difficult places, she's getting married to him, she better find out what this is all about. So early one morning, they showed up, and we have a little room upstairs in our barn, and so the three of us sat at a table upstairs in the barn, and uh, I just said, tell me why you're here. And I sat on one side of the table, she sat on the other side, and he sat on the end. And he proceeded to tell me how horrifically angry he was. He was a good-looking, strong, he looked to be, I think he's probably around 6'1", 6'2". I mean, just the picture of masculinity. And, and he's... He sat there, and you could just see the anger. And he would say how, how his dad would beat him with a leather strap 39 times. He would count it 39 times. And he hated his mother because his mother would tell his dad when he came home, he needs to be beat because he did this and this and this. And his dad would pull out the leather strap. He'd get another 39. He hated his parents, hated them. And he's getting married in two weeks. All I can tell you is, is I wanted, I, when, when we were done with this, I was going to ask her for her father's phone number. I was going to call him and say, if you let your daughter marry this guy, there's something wrong with you. Stop it. Don't let her go through with this. So I'm sitting there listening to him tell horror stories about parents, about the beatings, about church, and some of the problems that he had in, within the church structure and leadership. And then I'm sitting there, and I started writing some notes, and I just quit. And I go, I don't know what to do with this. I do not know what to do with this. And so finally I said, could I get you to ask God something? He goes, sure. <laughs> and so I said, uh, said, so close your eyes and ask him this. Ask Jesus this. Jesus, are you like my daddy? And you know, no words came out of his mouth except this cry. And his, his hands crossed and his head went down against his forearms. And he started wailing. He started wailing. And loud, Grace was out in the garden. She could hear him out in the garden. He was crying. He was sobbing. He was wailing. And I just sat there. And she sat there. And we just sat there. I didn't know what to do. This went on and on and on. And finally, he lifted up his head. It quit. The sobs quit, and there was this pile of snot and tears on the table this big, this, this big around. And he looked at me, and he says, Jesus told me I'm not like your daddy. There was a different look on his face. You know, today, they're married. When they come back, they call Grace and I mom and dad. They, they live out west now. They come back, and they take us out for dinner at Christmas time. And you know what? They have a family. They're happy. They're doing well together. 
You know, I didn't, I didn't heal him. Jesus healed him. Jesus told him, I am not like your daddy. And Jesus, you see, I, Grace and I had another situation very similar. It was a di very difficult. Maybe I'll give this story another time. But this, I asked this gal who was very abused. I said, could I get you to ask Jesus for something? And she goes, no. <laughs> now what do you do? So then I asked her, I said, could I ask him for you? And she goes, yes. I'll probably tell you that story tomorrow. So when, you sit, when, you, when Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, I have watched people have a very, very difficult time thinking that God just might be like my daddy. Okay, can you hear that? Can you hear that? Or like a church leader or like another authority figure who gives us a, an imprint of who we think God is like. My heartbeat this evening is that we would see God for who he truly is. We would see that this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and your son, Jesus, whom you sent, who is an identical replication of who God is in nature. Wow. Okay, it's interesting. <clears throat> It, 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 talk, it, it refers to God as Father in the Old Testament hardly ever, hardly ever. He sort of refers to himself that way. But so interesting, in the New Testament, ten times in Matthew, and, and I think it's 18 times totally in the New Testament, but it, they're all in the New Testament where when you pray, say, when it refers to God as Father. I, I find that very interesting, don't you? Yeah. It changed. Two basic ways to approach God, business or family. I have some, a business would say, I have something for you. Family, it's what I am to you. And I want to tell you something. God has used family conversation and fi family speech and family words all the way from Genesis to Revelation when he talks about his people. He always uses family terms. Almost always. God is interested in family. God wants sons and daughters. God wants family. Jesus wants a bride. And he calls us over and over sons and daughters. Business, it's performance. Family, it's commitment. Business is goods and services. Family, it's relationship. Conditional, unconditional. Customer, son, daughter. If you perform, you're accepted. You're accepted, therefore you obey. That's huge. We can't go there tonight. When you pray, when you're praying, when it's a business transaction and you see him as a, a, somebody other than father, you're talking to our king. You know, I, I don't know how you pray. When you pray, I don't know what you call God. I hear people say, well, dear God, and they start praying. But, you know, when I saw that Jesus says, when you pray, say father, when I start my praying, I call him father. Why? Because Jesus told me to. He gave me the wonderful privilege of calling the eternal, true God who created the heavens and the earth. He, gave, he gives us his blessed privilege of saying, Daddy, my Father. Wow. What was your father like? What is he? What was he like? It's huge. So what kind of a father are you, men? What kind of mother are you, gals? How great is the love the Father has. I, I love this scripture. This scripture is so powerful. 
Look, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. I think we'll look at this scripture again tomorrow. But look what it says. How great. And this isn't a question. It ends with an exclamation point. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's put almost like a question. But it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. King James says, bestowed on us. That we should be called the children of God. Do you hear that? It's, it's, it's beyond our comprehension the kind of love it is that we can be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Oh, my word. Can you imagine what a blessing it is? You, because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. That's, that's a beyond comprehension thing. And that's what John is saying. I can hardly believe it that the Father has lavished this kind of love on us that we can be, we can be called his son, his daughter. He says the reason the world doesn't, it does not know us is that it didn't know him. You see, eternal life is knowing God. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. Wow. Isn't that, that's huge amount of comfort. Wow. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, it's a motive to walk in a pure life before the Father, before each other. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1-3 says, says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, if Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow. God, let light shine into darkness by giving us Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, sometimes you can, you know, he's talking about a, a very difficult life. But he says, but because we have Jesus. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise up with us up with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Wow. We're going to wrap this up here. We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Bear with me. I'm going to keep on motoring here. In Colossians, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now pay attention to what's being said here. For by him, all things were created Things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Do you remember? He's talking, about, he's talking about the angelic world. All those were created by him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But now look, continue to see what it says. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, here's, hear this. And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. You see, if Christ, if, if all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, and Christ is in you, you know what that's saying? It says, in you dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
You are the temple of the living God, and he dwells in you. That's an amazing statement, an amazing statement. Consider the strength and tenderness of Jesus. The lame man left down through the roof, and he says, sons, your sins are forgiven you. He knew what his real need really was. If you would have, Jesus, uh, when, when Mary said to him, if you would have been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus cried. Why? Because he, he cared deeply. In fact, someone says that the real meaning in there, it says he wailed. And when he told Lazarus to come forth, it says he bellowed. Lazarus come forth because he was so angry at, the, at, at death and the pain that it causes us when somebody close to us dies. He touched the deaf mute's lips and ears. Do you know, he, he touched lepers. Why did Jesus touch anybody? He didn't have to. He could, have healed, he could heal anybody by just speaking the words, but he touched lepers. Why would he touch lepers? How, who knows what else they're called? What's another term they're called? Untouchables. Remember? They were called untouchables. But Jesus touched them. Why? Because they needed to be touched. Do you know Jesus will touch you? He cares. That's why he's a compassionate Jesus, a compassionate father. You know, this is a story that grips me. At the dead girl's bedside, remember? Uh, the... Uh, I can't think of his name. Doesn't matter. No. Yeah, Jairus' daughter. Yeah. Okay. He was he was a synagogue ruler, and he came to Jesus, and that that's a whole story. It's it's a fun one, but we can't go there. But Jesus, he took Jesus, and and they came to him while he was walking along, and they said, "Well, your your daughter's dead," and he goes, "No, don't be afraid. She's just sleeping," <laughs> and they laughed. But he goes there, and he's standing by the bedside of this girl who died. And he reaches down and he takes her hand and he says, Talitha Kum. And I love what Tim Keller says about that. He says, we don't understand what's really being said there. When he says Talitha Kum, it, it, it tells us the definition or what it means in, the, in our Bible. It says it means little girl, get up. He says, he says you don't understand the, the gentleness and the care. He says, that is like a mother walking into her, her daughter's bedroom saying, hey, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And he says, Jesus reached down and says, hey, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. Do you know what's cool about that? Because I know someday I'm going to be dead. And Jesus is going to reach down, take my hand, say, hey, Jason, time to get up. Yeah. And then he not only did that, he says, hey, do you know what? She's been sick for a while. She's hungry. Get her something to eat. Do you, see, do you see how Jesus cares about the details? That's the kind of father we have. Yeah. That's the kind of father we have. How should this impact us? We're to become like him. We are to be image bearers. We're to become like him. We're to become like Jesus so that when people meet us, when people meet you tomorrow, when people meet you this evening, and the next day, and I want people to see Jesus when they meet me. How about if we make that decision, that we want people to see Jesus when they meet us? Okay. 
I pray for those who believe in me that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And we're going to be talking about that Sunday morning because that's intimacy. That is closeness, unbelievable closeness. There's a oneness there, a togetherness. Saul to Paul, an example of a healed life. What kind of a man was Paul? He was breathing threatenings to the church. What kind of a church leader was he? He was a gentle church leader. I like what I see. Here's what happens when I... Here's a little bit of read goofy theology. And that is, I believe that when we become born again and we get the fullness of God in us, which we saw in Colossians there, in him dwelt all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Okay, I believe that when a man is born again, he gets God's full nature, which means God is neither male nor female. God is masculine and feminine, and I believe when a man gets born again, he gets some of God's feminine nature. He doesn't quit being a man, and he won't lose his masculinity, but he gets a taste of femininity. And I believe when you gals get born again, you get a, you get a touch of God's masculinity, his strength, his ability to make decisions. He, you see, I believe we get balanced when we get born again. Look at Paul, for example. What kind of a church leader was he? Look what he says. We were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. He, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. You know, the King James would say, like a nurse cherisheth her child. When it says, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for a little child, that is a picture of a, a mother nursing a baby at her breast. That's what it is. That's Paul speaking these words. Look at the next one it says. My dear children, for who am I? I'm again in the pains of childbirth for you until Christ is formed in you. What did he know about childbirth? But you see, he became gentle. He, he went from this harsh, persecuting man to being gentle and caring. God, we become balanced when we become born again believer. He wants us healed. Now, this is the closing. I, I promise it, it, that's what they say. That's a meaningless preacher expression. And now in closing, right? <clears throat> but I'd like you to read this. I'll, I'll read it out loud. Maybe it's too small to read. But the New York Times was interviewing Tim Keller, and he says, what I admire, New York Times was saying, what I admire most about Christianity is the amazing good work it inspires people to do around the world, but I'm troubled by the notion that people go to heaven only if they have a direct relationship with Jesus. Doesn't that imply that billions of people, Buddhists, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, are consigned to hell because they grew up in non-Christian families around the world? That Gandhi is in hell? Tim Keller responds, the Bible makes categorical statements that you can't be saved except through faith in Jesus. I'm very sympathetic to your concerns because this seems so exclusive and unfair. There are many views of this issue, so my thoughts on this cannot be considered a Christian response, but here they are. You imply that really good people, like Gandhi, should also be saved, not just Christians. The problem is, is that Christians do not believe anyone can be saved by being good. If you don't come to God through faith in what Christ has done, you would be approaching on the basis of your own goodness. This would, ironically, actually be more exclusive and unfair, since so often those that we tend to think of as bad, the abusers, the haters, the feckless, the selfish, 
have themselves often had abusive and brutal backgrounds. Christians believe that it is those who admit their weakness and need of a savior who get salvation. If access to God is through the grace of Jesus, then anyone can receive eternal life. That is why born-again Christianity will always give hope and spread among the wretched of the earth. I can imagine someone saying, well, why can't God just accept everyone? Universal salvation. Well, then you create a different problem with fairness. It means God wouldn't really care about injustice and evil. There is still the question of fairness regarding people who have grown up away from any real exposure to Christianity. The Bible is clear about two things, that salvation must be through grace and faith in Christ, and that God is always fair and just in all his dealings. What it doesn't directly tell us is how both of these things can be true together. But just because I can't see a way doesn't prove there cannot be any such way. If we have a God big enough to deserve being called God, then we have a God big enough to reconcile both justice and love. Father, thank you that you are a God who is big enough to balance justice and love. And Father, thank you for being a God of compassion, of mercy, abounding in love, slow to anger, full of forgiveness. Thank you for being a Father who loves us unconditionally because, because you love us. And then you give us, you give us hope the hope of eternal life. And people might think that you don't really care, but you care so much that you became one of us to walk and talk here on earth and to experience all the hurt, the pain, rejection, that beyond what any of us could possibly experience so that we can't say you don't understand. And because of that, we have a faithful high priest that we can come boldly to and we can, we can lay our burdens at your feet and you understand and you care and you love us you'll heal us you'll forgive us when we pick up these tools because we believe in you and we believe in the true god for who you really are thank you for being that kind of a father in jesus name amen your comments your thoughts Thank you. No, I know I didn't give you much of an opportunity to, to talk about it, but yeah. I really like your emphasis tonight on, on knowing God, that He wants us to know Him. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we all know that, but the, the emphasis tonight takes us beyond our. Sometimes we think getting to know God is better. Yes. We're going to look at why God created us as sexual beings Sunday morning because of that very thing. We grow up in church and we learn a lot about God and we know a lot about God, but few of us know him.
never knew you. It is. It gets down. You're welcome. It does. It gets down to knowing God. It really does. And he is knowable. Yeah. Really, the thing I picked up tonight is we really don't know ourselves enough to know God. Yeah. 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 We're going to be doing... Yeah. Go ahead. How do you stop iniquities? Okay, now we're going into the next sermon now. Okay, right? No, we're not going into the next sermon. So Grace says, how do you stop iniquities? That's really important, and so let's talk about it just briefly here. In, in, in Daniel 9, in Ezra 9, and in Nehemiah 9 and 10, it talks about how God's people dealt with iniquities. You see, the children of Israel were in Babylon because of what they, they chose, it was because of iniquity. Uh, for example, Daniel said, by, by reading and study of books, I discovered why we're there. I know. What? Say it out loud. I can't hear you. I'm supposed to read my wife's lips. But by the reading, he studied, he studied this and he discovered the reason why they were in captivity for 70 years is because for 490 years they did not keep the Sabbath year. Because they thought they could get just as much, they could get more increase if they would sow their seed and harvest on that Sabbath year. You know what's interesting is, is the consequences often don't come till much later from the sowing. And so we don't connect the, we don't connect the two. But here they're, in, in, they're in, in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel all of a sudden realizes they're, getting, they're going to be free shortly because their time of captivity is coming to an end. What did he do? Throw a party? No, he fell on his face and he confessed the iniquities of his fathers and his forefathers. You see, when we, to get rid of the iniquities, we acknowledge what took place in the past and tell the truth about it. Confession is agreeing with God that what was done violates his holiness and his plan. So if, there's, if there is moral failure in, in grandpa and father and, and on down through and we keep on, we, we need to just lay it out and say, here it is. And, and this, is where, this is where our four, you know, I, listen, my own, my own grandmother took my mom to be powwowed over. That's witchcraft. She read the horoscope regularly. She was the bishop's wife. She was the elder's wife. You know, I'm just telling you, when we started seeing and understanding some of these things as adults, we started acknowledging and confessing that before God, saying, you know, this was not, this, this totally violated your plan, Father. Would you, would you forgive the iniquities and would you stop them? We don't want to pass them on to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's how you stop it. That's how you handle iniquities. You confess it, you acknowledge it, and then you build disciplines into your life so you don't repeat it. Any other comments, questions? These two ladies down here are grinning and laughing and I'm getting worried. 
Okay, I, it's, it's, it's past time. I'm sorry, I, I took more time than I should have. But it's so good to be with you. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Blessings. Any? Nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Okay. Okay. Yep, yep.